Thank you very much. Laura, that is an incredibly hard act to follow, but I will do my best. <laughs> um, I'm going to do something very simple this evening. I'm going to tell two stories. I used to, as a documentary maker working in British television, tell other people's stories for a living. And now, as a doctor, I listen very carefully, very attentively to my patient stories in the hope that with my team, we can maybe help collectively to shape those life stories for the better. The author, Philip Pullman, who's no slouch at storytelling himself, once encapsulated the power of stories very beautifully, I thought, when he said, after nourishment, shelter, and companionship, stories are the thing we need most in the world. I believe that to be completely true and never more so than in the NHS. Last week, I was struck by a particularly memorable example of the power of storytelling in medicine when a colleague told me about a new initiative in the Royal Marsden Cancer Hospital here in London. One of the play specialists there had been wrestling with a very difficult problem, which is how to support children when they have to receive radiotherapy for their cancers. Of necessity, that entails a child being separated from their parents. They have to be in the scanner receiving the radiotherapy alone. And it's obviously potentially very traumatic and frightening for that child. The play therapist thought long and hard about that and came up with an ingenious and incredibly simple solution. She came up with magic string, as she called it. The magic string is a multicolored ball of twine and the child in the scanner can hold one end of the magic string, the other end threads under the floor and is held by the mother or father. What a beautiful idea, a literal thread that is simultaneously a narrative thread, a story that that child can tell themselves while they're alone, semi-clothed in a cold room, facing scary equipment and behind a lead-lined door. They can tell themselves a story that even though they're there, they're holding on to their parent and their parent on the other side of that lead-lined door is holding on to them and loving them. I work in palliative care in a wonderful hospice in Oxford and so I'm intimately involved in the ends of my patients' stories, the ends of their lives. And one of the very first things I think you learn in palliative care is how very important trying to work with your patients in that realm of meanings and what matters and what is important is at least as significant as anything a doctor might do to a patient. So the drugs, the interventions, the scalpels, the needles, that of course all has an incredibly important role in medicine, but so does the meanings stuff. That's the stuff I do primarily at the moment. This involves meeting a patient for the first time who knows they are coming to the end of their life and talking frankly and openly and honestly with them about what matters to them now. What are their goals? What do they want to achieve in the time remaining? What are they frightened of? How can we help? And all of that is a discourse of meaning rather than doing and intervening and doctors imposing upon patients. And a very important part of that discourse is the fact that 
Of course, when a patient's life comes to an end, their story does not. It lives on in the memories of all of those people around them who love them, both their life and the way in which their life ends. They live on. So it's incredibly important, if we can, to get that point of a patient's life right and as filled with dignity and meaning as it can be. So the first story I'm going to tell you uh, takes place from right at the end of my first ever week in palliative care. So I was very inexperienced. It was a crazy busy Friday afternoon. Always on a Friday things go wrong. You, you're desperate to leave the hospital, get home, see your kids. You never do. Um, and on this particular Friday, I was looking after a patient who I will call Ron. Uh, who was a man in his 60s with a, a widely metastatic lung cancer. He had metastases, tumours in his brain, and he had started to fade very quickly in the preceding couple of days. And by Friday afternoon, it was very clear that he was coming to the end of his life. He was perhaps in the last short hours of his life. Ron had been married to, again, I won't use her real name, Liz, for 50 years and they had met Ron and Liz at school when they were 15 years old. Um, they, in their, own, in, in their own words, in Liz's words, were childhood sweethearts who were always going to get married. I had to tell her that he was dying, he was dying now, and her response, unsurprisingly, given that her entire adult life had been spent with, with Ron, was dramatic and traumatic. She started screaming and she couldn't stop screaming over and over again. She screamed loudly and hauntingly. Everybody really in the hospice could hear this. It was very, very difficult. It was her only way of expressing how she felt at that point. She was in Ron's room. He was deeply unconscious. She was with a great many family members. Everything was very highly charged and emotional and I had to decide what to try and do acting with not much experience and just a little bit of instinct. So first of all, I asked the nine or 10 other family members if they would mind leaving the room and, and going off to a family room. And then when only the three of us remained, I put my hands on both of her shoulders and I looked at Liz and said, listen, let me ask you a question. Would you like to say goodbye to your husband? And she stopped, she, didn't, she was thrown by the question. She said, what, what do you mean? I said, would you like to say goodbye to him as his wife? Would you like to lie next to him now in his bed and say goodbye to him as only you, his wife, might do? And she said, how can I do that? That's not possible. And I said, it is possible, we'll make that happen. She said, yes, that's what I want to do. Um, I was very relieved because I was going out on a limb. I didn't know if that was the right thing to say or not. So I went and asked a couple of the wonderful nurses with whom I work if they might come and help me. And there was a lot of maneuvering and repositioning, but we managed to gently move Ron right onto the side of his bed so there was enough space for his wife to lie next to him. And she lay beside him. We put up the side of the bed and she threw her arms round him, she kissed him, she cuddled him, she told him over and over again that she loved him. And I left the room, we all left the room. About half an hour later, there was no noise now coming from the room, 
I went back in to see what was happening. The rest of her family had come back into the room and she was in exactly the same position. She was lying next to her husband, cuddling him, talking to him, saying all the things she wanted to him. And just a moment or two after I went back into the room, he died. He exhaled a final breath and he died in the arms of his wife. And no one could pretend that situation was good, but I think it was more meaningful than it might otherwise have been. And in fact, a few days afterwards, Liz came back to our hospice to thank us for giving her that opportunity to say goodbye in the way in which she needed and wanted to to her husband. And she said, I will never forget that I had that experience with him. And for me, that story exemplifies two things. F first and foremost, that even in a part of a hospital that can seem to be more black and bleak and full of fear and foreboding than any other part, a hospice, in actual fact, there is more than enough love to light the rooms. And what I find, what strikes me every day at work, is not the grief and the sadness, although of course those things are there, it is the love, the sheer quantity of the love that drives all of the grief and sadness. The hospice is a place that is saturated with love and the sheer ferocity of the love I see every day in the families of patients I care for at the end of their lives. The ferocity with which they want to hold them and not let them go is quite remarkable. And I suppose in one fundamental sense, all of us are connected very strongly, very powerfully to somebody. It might not be literal magic string, but it is certainly metaphorical and it's certainly powerful. Of course, not all deaths end as we wish them. And the second story I would like to tell you this evening is a very different kind of patient ending. And it takes place from almost a year ago at what was described at the time as the NHS's humanitarian crisis. So the British Red Cross used those words to describe what was happening in our hospitals last winter. There were thousands of patients up and down the country in corridors, on trolleys, in ambulances trapped on hospital forecourts, the whole system ground to a halt. There weren't enough beds, there weren't enough nurses or doctors. It was inhuman to such an extent that the Red Cross said, this is a humanitarian crisis. At that time, a colleague of mine was working in A&E and she was asked to escort a patient who needed to be moved from the A&E department up to another level in the hospital. A bed had been found somewhere else for this patient and they had to be moved now because there were no beds. There were people lined up in every corridor, literally last winter, broom cupboards, store cupboards, hospital gyms, offices were all used to treat patients. Such was the state of crisis. She duly did as she was told. She was a very young and very junior doctor and she went off with a porter to escort this patient to a bed on a ward. The patient was clearly very sick, but my colleague was obedient, didn't feel she could question what her senior had told her. And she went off in a lift with the patient and the porter. And at some stage, transitioning from the basement of the hospital up to the eighth or ninth floor in the lift, the patient died. 
the patient was dying. They were probably dying even before they entered the lift. And yet, instead of being treated with a modicum of respect or dignity, compassion or humanity, they were treated more like a FedEx parcel than a human being. They were in transit when they died. Such were the pressures on that A&E department. You can argue that you couldn't actually fault the staff who were overwhelmed, overloaded, doing their best, but nobody could pretend that that is good health care and certainly not health care that befits an NHS that wants to think of itself as a world-class health service. And this leads on to the NHS's own story. I think most of us in Britain have a story, an idealised narrative of the health service that we love to tell ourselves. For 70 years, since 1948, we as a society have come together through our general taxation to provide a health service that ensures everybody in British society who is unfortunate enough to befall illness will receive high quality health care irrespective of their wealth, status, voice or power in society. We are kind and humane and decent enough to provide that for people in need. I think that's an ideal that most people in Britain subscribe to and it's the reason why in poll after poll after poll the NHS comes out as the institution in Britain that makes us most proud, more than the Queen, any other institution. I suspect David Attenborough might top the NHS, but that's another story. However, the reality on the ground increasingly seems to belie that idealised narrative. So what I see day in, day out in the hospital very often falls short of ideal care. And this is desperately worrying, I think. We, I, I don't want to get into party politics, but I think we can all agree on one thing, and that is that a story resonates with us if it is true. It has to be true to be meaningful. If reality is overstretched, if patients are literally dying in lifts or in hospital corridors, on trolleys or in ambulances, as they are in Britain today, then no amount of spin and fine statistics from a health secretary or the Department of Health spin doctors can make that go away. That is the truth. You can't gloss over it. And therefore, surely it's beholden on all of us, including our political representatives, to do something very simple, which is to have an honest debate with the British electorate about what kind of health service we would like. It's really simple. If you want a world-class health service, it needs a world-class budget. You can't have both. Either we fund a world-class service or we decide which bits of our NHS we want to chop away in order to meet the budget we are willing to spend. I can't pretend to have any answers to that. I just know that an honest conversation is needed first and foremost if we're to address this in any kind of meaningful way. What I do know is in my career in the NHS for the last nine years, but particularly for the last year that I have been a palliative care doctor, every day at work what I do is steeped in love and steeped in loss. It is an honour and a privilege to work with patients at the end of life and the love and the loss go hand in hand. None of it frightens me. We, all of us in palliative care, look at it in a clear-eyed way. The loss that really, really worries me to my core, however, is the loss 
of the wonderful National Health Service in which I am enabled to do the work I do for some of the most vulnerable patients in our society. And I hope from the very bottom of my heart that we, the British public, will make sure that the NHS is not itself entering a palliative phase of its story and that it is not going to die on our watch. Thank you very much.